from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Michelle Baltz is on the show today, and she's the author of Composting for a New Generation, Latest Techniques for the Bin and Beyond. A longtime backyard composter with a passion for reducing our impact on the planet, Michelle offers laid-back advice for home composters in the Confessions of a Composter blog, She also teaches classes on backyard composting, and she's busy learning everything she can about composting, recycling, reusing, and waste reduction. If you've been hesitant to begin composting, worried about the appearance, the smell, or just lack of know-how, Michelle points out that advances in technology and in composting make composting a very doable and positive experience. If you're looking for expert advice on beginning composting, or if you're curious about various techniques, including traditional bins and piles, vermicomposting, trench composting, black soldier fly larva composting, and more, Michelle shares it all in today's episode. Composting Solutions, Cleaner, Faster Methods to Redefine Rotten with Michelle Baltz. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. All right. Well, let me start out by saying welcome. Welcome to the show. If you're a brand new listener or a returning listener, it's great to have you here. Thank you for being here. And I always like to say that I hope you're listening to many different gardening podcasts. This week, I listened to the brand new Wisconsin Vegetable Gardener podcast because they were featuring Emily Murphy. She's the author of the new book, Grow What You Love, 12 Food Plant Families to Change Your Life. And I really wanted to hear this interview because I got the book and I thought it would be fun to check this interview out. So Emily talks about why people commonly grow what they don't like to eat. Isn't that crazy? We all do that. We've all done that. And that was the main driver for her book, Grow What You Love. Check out that podcast, especially that interview, the Wisconsin Vegetable Gardener podcast. This was episode one of season two, and it was featuring Emily Murphy. I love gardening podcasts. It's such a wonderful way to grow and learn as a gardener. And I'm so honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. So thank you for that. I have a funny story that I thought I'd share with you this week as well. My daughter is a sophomore in high school. She had a class where they were practicing some public speaking. And so it was her turn to get up and she drew a topic and it said plants. And the instructor looked at her and he said, oh, you can redraw a different one. You don't have to speak about plants. And as Emma's telling me this story, she looked at me and she goes, you know, mom, I just looked at him and said, I got this. So she was able to give her whole presentation on plants. She talked about the podcast, but she also talked about her favorite things about gardening, including her favorite plant. If you're a gardener and a parent, I can't think of any greater thrill than to have your kids someday garden. 
but this came close for me. So bravo, Emma, all of those hours of listening to mom's podcast finally paid off. And I hope you got an A on your speech about plants. And by the way, I'm a little disappointed that the instructor said, oh, do you want to change topics? Because our kids should know how to talk about plants as a topic. Think about that. Ponder that this week. Are we doing enough to make sure that our kids are learning about plants? If you're a gardener, sometimes we think that just happens naturally. They're around us and they're observing that. But maybe we can do more and be more intentional around helping them build their plant literacy. All right. I'd like to invite you to the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show. And these folks are made up of gardeners of all different skill levels and locations. And you can find it very easily on Facebook just by typing in the name of our group into the search bar. Just search for the Still Growing Podcast group and the listener community will show up and you can just click to request to join. And we'd love to admit you into the group. If you join the group, you get access to all of the garden articles that I curate for you. They appear in the Facebook newsfeed. And also, it's the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any show giveaways. This week's winner is Sarah Bedint. Sarah won a copy of Karen Chapman and Christina Solwitz's book, Gardening with Foliage First, 127 Dazzling Combinations That Pair the Beauty of Leaves with Flowers, Bark, Berries, and More. So congratulations, Sarah. Go ahead and private message me with your contact information, including your email, and we'll make sure that you get a copy of that book. You're going to love it. So congratulations again, Sarah. Now it's time to welcome new members to the group, Taryn Davis, Melissa Coffey. In fact, Melissa was a guest on the show back in episode 597 on How to Speak Chicken, her fantastic book. So check that out. Also welcome Lynn Jindusa. Lynn's been on the show a number of times reading the articles she's written for Thanksgiving and Easter. Love those. Amy Harbin, Fernanda Marta, Gretchen Bowie, Stephanie Z, Randy Houdeschelt, Claudia Bonilla Keller, Kate Noble, Georgianne Sebastian, and Anne Sickinger. Welcome, you guys. And by the way, that's one of the things that I wanted for the group. I wanted it to be a place where listeners of the show and guests who have been on the show can connect with each other long after the podcast episode has been produced. The guests love interacting with you and answering any questions you might have. Speaking of reaching out, you can always contact the show. There's a phone number for the show. It's 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback for the show, I'd love to hear from you. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay pretty informed about the news and horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. 
And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, The Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. In the guest update segment, past guest Jen McGinnis over at the blog Frau Zenny has a giveaway of that book I was talking about earlier, Emily Murphy's new book called Grow What You Love. You can head on over to her website and then enter to win a copy of the brand new book. Also in the guest update segment, I caught a post from Marta McDowell showing pictures of her forcing branches this spring. Such a fun activity. She's been forcing forsythia and also ornamental pear. In fact, this image that she had shared was of her ornamental pear. And there were not only beautiful pear blossoms, but also leaves as well. And Marta noted that she loved seeing the leaves emerge in addition to the blossom. So that's bonus. Finally, in the guest update segment, Barbara Pleasant was recently on the show regarding her book on houseplants, The Complete Houseplant Survival Guide. But she was also featured back in episode 584 with her book, Homegrown Pantry. And right now, for the month of March, you can get the ebook version of Homegrown Pantry on Amazon for just $2.99 this month. If you click on the link over in the Still Growing podcast group in the Facebook group. You can also support the show by using that link. In sustainability and in honor of today's show, I found a post called 100 Things You Can Compost. This was written by Small Footprint Family. And what I liked about this post is that they went room by room. So here are some of the things you can compost, maybe some things that might not be top of mind for you. From the kitchen, stale tortilla chips or potato chips, stale cereal or crackers, old herbs and spices. From the bathroom, you can use facial tissues, hair from your hairbrush, old loofahs, from the laundry room, Dryerland. I talk about that with Michelle. From the office, paper documents that have been shredded, pencil shavings, shredded business cards or sticky notes. And then from around the house, dust bunnies, contents of your dustpan, potpourri, dead houseplants. Anyway, it's a nice little list, fun to go through, and a great reminder that there are plenty of things you can compost from inside the house. And this list will help you keep them top of mind. In Continuing Ed, Garden Therapy shared a really comprehensive post, and this was called The Ultimate Seed Starting Guide. So even if you're a little late to get going here and you still want to start some seeds, check out this guide for some great tips and printables, wonderful resources, all from Garden Therapy. Also in Continuing Ed, simonscat.com shared some wonderful cat-friendly plants for your garden. Of course, they mention cat mint, but you can also try things like lemongrass or valerian. They have a number of great ideas here. So check out that post if you have a kitty and you want to grow something for your little furry companion. In the how-to DIY segment, Savvy Gardening shared a post called Planting a Spring Herb Garden for Homegrown Herbal Teas. 
Now, what's great about herbal teas, of course, is that they're caffeine-free and that you can control the ingredients. You have complete knowledge of what's going into your tea, and you'll know whether or not it's organic. Most herbs are very easy to grow, so growing herbs for herbal tea is just a natural next step. So think about growing things like peppermint or apple mint, one of my favorites. Of course, basil, thyme, lavender, Don't forget bee balm, something a lot of people don't consider to be an herb. They're thinking of it as a perennial flower, but it is an herb. Even marigolds. In any case, Jessica shares many wonderful suggestions here, as well as just some anecdotal information around what she does as she's using herbs for herbal teas. Also in the how-to DIY segment, Emma Mitchell shared a post on Twitter, and this was showing some of the plants that she had pressed last year. So here's what she said. Last year, I pressed common wildflowers and specimens from our garden to make a herbarium. It may seem old-fashioned, but preserving samples through the year can help children begin learning about botany and seasonal changes. Plus, it's like finding a glimpse of July inside a book. Now, if you're not following Emma Mitchell yet on Twitter, you're really missing out. She's the author of one of my favorite books, Making Winter. And this is one of the activities that she regularly does, and she shares it on her Twitter feed and I'm sure on other social media platforms as well. But I follow her on Twitter, and I love seeing her posts. This one was excellent. Not only is the image of these pressed wildflowers so captivating, but she makes a great point here that this is yet one more way you can get kids excited about horticulture. So that's why I put it in the how-to DIY segment this week. In the plant spotlight this week, gardenhistorygirl.com wrote a post called The Cabbage That Is King, Brassica oleracea longata. And then she tells the curious case of the seven-foot-tall cabbage, which brought two seed sellers and one reverend together in a court case back in 1898. The seed sellers were upset because they still had not collected their 24 pounds from the reverend for these cabbage seeds that they had sold him. And he was countersuing them because the plants were not as described. He had a full 200 acres, 20,000 plants of strange tree-like stalks with cabbage heads waving way up there at the top, kind of like a leafy nest. So the story that's told here is that he's sharing in this court case that he planted this cabbage and it grew past two feet, three feet, four feet, five feet, six feet, until they were seven feet off of the ground. And then he shared an actual cabbage showing that it was seven feet tall from the root, four feet of it was bare stump, and then a cluster of leaves. And he said, Your Honor, I would like to submit as evidence this gigantic cabbage. And then I love what Garden History Girl wrote here. She said, Cue the expert witness, a horticulturist who identified the beast as Brassica oleracea lungata, tree cabbage or giant cow cabbage, 
or long jacks, or Jersey kale. It's found on the Channel Islands, where it has historically been grown for, wait for it, walking sticks. Yes, walking sticks. And that's why it's sometimes called walking stick kale. So if you enjoy gardening history, you're going to love this post. I had not heard of this before, Brassica oleracea longata, or walking stick kale. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about what Garden History Girl did here is that she shared a lot of different resources for this. So I looked at some of her source material, and I found two other articles that I really liked. One was called How to Grow the Hook for the Walking Stick You Plan to Make from Your Walking Stick Kale. That was very interesting if you decide you want to try to grow this. And then finally, there was a discussion thread on this back from 2011, and it's called What is This Plant? It's Walking Stick Kale or Jersey Kale. There were a number of posts that made the news segment this week. First up in the news, a living connection to George Washington is no more. Sadly, Mount Vernon reported on Twitter that strong winds brought down a 227-year-old Canadian hemlock, as well as a Virginia cedar, and they both were standing watch over Washington's tomb for many years. In fact, People believe that Washington may have planted that tree, but sadly, it is no more. Also in the news, The Guardian shared a very interesting post about the top pests that are facing UK gardens. Box caterpillar and fuchsia mite top the list. The Royal Horticulture Society also warned that a game-changing bacterial disease, I think it's called xylella, is devastating parts of Southern Europe. It's a very serious danger to plants and trees. It's a bacteria, and plants at risk include grape, peach, citrus, olive, oak, sycamore, and many other common trees, in addition to ornamental plants such as euphorbia, lavender, and roseberry. The bacteria live in the water-conducting vessels, or the xylem of the plants, which leads me to believe that it's called xylella. And then it spreads because you have insects that feed on the xylem, such as leaf hoppers and spittle bugs, and then they go from plant to plant and infect more hosts. In the Dream Guest segment this week, I stumbled on a post last week from cntraveler.com that was sharing a story about one woman's travels that had brought her to see this Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Now, the images of this garden in this travel video were amazing. That led me to Google this particular garden, and that's how I stumbled on this article for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and Grace Coburn. So this was a really fun story on her and how she takes care of this amazing garden. And by the way, there's a wonderful Instagram account devoted to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and you can see all of Grace Coborn's work there. Grace grew up with gardening in her genes. Her father ran a landscaping business as she was growing up on Cape Cod, and she honed her plant nerd skills at UMass Amherst. 
And I love what she said here about her work. She said, I think a lot of it seems very monotonous, but there's so much to the work and there are so many nuanced things. Even if I'm watering every day, I'm paying attention to all these different changes that the plants are going through. It's a crazy learning experience through the veil of it just being a monotonous job. I love how she said that, a crazy learning experience through the veil of the monotony. And that's exactly right. That's often how we learn in the garden. We're doing things over and over and over again, and then suddenly a little light bulb goes on. We notice something We figure something out that we hadn't observed or learned before. Anyway, I loved this article, so check it out. If you're in the Facebook group, type in museum, and this post will pop up. It's called What It's Like to Be the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum's Horticulturist, and it's all about Grace Coborn, and that's why she made the Dream Guest segment this week. In Science, the Woodland Park Zoo blog shared a very interesting post. It was called Six Seasons of Amphibian Monitoring with Citizen Science. I like this post a lot because, first of all, I didn't realize that there was an amphibian monitoring program. And it also talked about using iNaturalist, the user-friendly network for sharing biodiversity observations. So that is such a great resource. If you haven't been on iNaturalist yet, definitely check that out. And then the other thing I appreciated about this particular post is that the volunteers who did the amphibian monitoring got together and wrote a poem about breeding season. So this is their poem. It's called Froggy Love, and it's by Bellevue Master Naturalist. So here it is, Froggy Love. Even in this cold and beastly winter, the amphibians take time for froggy love, leaving jellied eggs below the surface of a pond that sedges poke above. Clouds are partly lifting, so the humans risking brisky air and pending pour, wearing clunky boots and draped in cameras, gently wade in shallows at the shore. Peering at the surface, clear or murky, slipping plastic sheet a tad beneath, they examine, they explore, and part the waters, checking under stalks and fallen leaf. I think I found one, much elated, shows the others, cloudy purse with round black eggs, counting five or six, well adhering to the stalk of old emergent, must be chorus frog, they murmur, take a pick. The volunteer with camera snaps a photo, calls out the hue of eggs, the size of mass, and on the shore, the data are recorded with date and time and waypoint GPS. Which organism is the more triumphant? Is it salamander, frog, or newt whose reproductive talent has been proven? Or... The nature hounds, 
in Data's Hot Pursuit. Very clever. Love that poem. Loved learning about amphibian monitoring. And another great reminder to go over and check out iNaturalist. That's a great to-do this week. Also in science, there was a post in The Guardian about a total ban on bee-harming pesticides that apparently is likely after a major new European Union analysis. So neonics are on the chopping block and just might be banned from all fields across the European Union after the nations vote on this issue next month. That'll be interesting to follow. In the shopping segment, a brand new book made my list. It's by Carrie Ann Mendez, and the topic is something I love. It's a combination of shopping and saving money, and it's called The Budget Wise Gardener. I've put a link to that in the Facebook group for the show, The Still Growing Podcast Group. Again, it's called The Budget Wise Gardener, Hundreds of Money-Saving Buying and Design Tips for Planting the Best for less. Love it. In inspiration this week, the Smithsonian Gardens shared a beautiful image of a magnolia bud. And they wrote this. They said, we are officially on magnolia bud watch in the Enid Haupt Garden. Our horticulturist predicts the garden will look very pink by next weekend in D.C. I'm sure many of you are on magnolia watch as well. Forsythia used to be my favorite spring flowering shrub. And then I switched over to magnolia when I got one on clearance. And now I think that thing's about five feet or so. And I'm looking forward to it. It's loaded with buds this year. All right. In the quotable segment are some quotables about compost in honor of today's show. The first one's from Diana Wells, Manure Sweet Manure, Green Prince, Spring 1998. People who love compost can drive you crazy Eyeing your eggshell well before you've finished your egg. <laughs> this next one's from Harold Epstein, Rock Gardener, quoted in The Everest of Rock Gardens by Linda Yang, The New York Times, November 21st, 1991. It took years to learn what would not grow here. I like to say I have the greatest catalog of plants in my compost heap. Here's this gem from Walt Whitman, This Compost, 1867. Behold this compost. Behold it well. What chemistry. Earth grows such sweet things out of such corruptions. Finally, this one from Thoreau. Decayed literature makes the best soil. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, composting solutions, cleaner, faster methods to redefine rotten with Michelle Boltz. Remember the intro to the Beverly Hillbillies where they talked about black gold? 
In that case, the reference was to Texas tea or oil. But gardeners know that black gold is compost, that rich, dark, earthy, crumbly substance worth its weight in vegetables and with undeniable benefits in the garden. And here's just a handful of benefits that I came up with. First, you get to teach your children about decomposition and zero waste. Second, you decrease the need to use chemicals and fertilizers, and you are able to naturally reduce weeds just by adding compost to your garden. And compost makes great soil to cultivate healthy plants because it stimulates the creation of soil particle clusters, which creates better soil structure with healthy air pockets and channels connecting the soil particle clusters. Composting also fosters diverse life in the soil, from worms and fungi to bugs and birds. Composting prevents erosion and promotes strong root systems in plants. You can conserve water by improving water retention and decreasing runoff. And finally, you can reduce waste by diverting food waste from landfills. In fact, an EPA study showed that as much as a quarter of all landfill waste could be composted instead of being sent to the landfill. Just think, 25% of all waste could be turned into black gold. Truly Compost is a worthwhile garden investment, and no one is more convinced of that than today's guest, Michelle Boltz. A lifelong resident of Cincinnati, waste management is also Michelle's day job. She works at the Hamilton County Recycling and Solid Waste District as the assistant solid waste manager, and her mission is to reduce the amount of solid waste going into the landfill. So she works with communities on curbside recycling. She spends a lot of time in education and outreach to everyone who creates trash. So that's basically everyone. She helps businesses set up recycling programs, and she goes out to communities to set up curbside recycling. She also hosts composting seminars and also seminars on how to reduce food waste. Finally, she leads outreach campaigns to promote recycling, and she even helps schools with education programs and how to implement recycling and waste reduction strategies. Phew, that's a lot. Michelle's a busy lady. So if you want to start composting, but you haven't started yet, guess what? Getting started is the hardest part about composting. And Michelle points out, composting is simple. You just need to get started. And bonus, you can be as lazy or industrious about it as you want to be. One of the things you'll hear Michelle say early in the interview is how saving food scraps is just second nature for her family. And that's how it started at our house, too. I wanted to save coffee grounds, so I bought a stainless steel bin from Goodwill, and I put the container by our coffee beans. And then when I make coffee, I dump the grounds into that container. It's just right there, and it's just my process for making coffee. I wanted to start saving eggshells, so I taught the kids to put the broken eggshells back in the carton instead of throwing them away. It's these little steps 
that get you on your way to composting. Before you know it, it's just something you do. These little changes that make big differences to your soil and your garden. Now, here are a few fun tidbits to keep in mind for today's episode. First, if it grows, it goes. Michelle says this too. If the item was once part of a plant, it goes in the compost bin. So, for example, Last night, I burned my finger. I was making tortellini for the kids, and I have this new stove, and apparently that front burner gets so hot, it made the handles to my pot hot as well, but I didn't realize that was happening. So when I went to move it, I burned my index finger. So the first thing I did after running some cold water over it is I went over to my aloe plant, and I cut one of the leaves, and then I applied that to my finger. Now, In the past, I could have just thrown that leaf away, but instead, that will be going in my compost pile. It will live to serve another day. And I think it feels good to know that plant cuttings and stems can still be of use. Here's another saying that I love. This one's from Peggy in Montgomery, and she told this to me when we were sitting on a bus together at the Garden Bloggers Fling. We were in between gardens, and we just had a chance to chat with each other. I was talking to Peggy Ann about my chop and drop strategy, basically when I'm going around my garden doing various grooming activities on the plants. If I'm snipping little pieces off, I just let them fall to the ground so that they can go back to the earth and and feed the plant. And then I was talking to her about teaching my student gardeners my chop and drop strategy. And Peggy Ann said this to me, Our motto for our garden is nothing green or brown leaves the property. I love that. So nothing green or brown leaves the property. And you can incorporate that into your composting strategy. Now, speaking of green or brown, ingredients for composting can be classified into two different categories, green materials and brown materials. Green material is usually of a high moisture content and it's rich in nitrogen. So think about grass clippings, all of your fruit and vegetable scraps or peelings, coffee grounds, tea bags, feathers, eggshells, all of that is considered green material. The brown material acts as your dry material. It's rich in carbon. So it includes things like leaves, newspaper, wood chips, shredded paper, straw and hay, sawdust, cardboard, the tubes from your paper towels or your toilet rolls, and even money. In fact, tons of old United States paper money called dirty money by the Federal Reserve Bank is mulched into compost every single day. So if it grows, it goes. Nothing green or brown leaves the property. And knowing the difference between your green material and your brown material, you're all set. We're talking compost today how to make black gold with the woman behind the Confessions of a Composter blog. Here's Composting Solutions, Cleaner, Faster Methods to Redefine Rotten with Michelle Boltz. Well, welcome to the Still Growing Podcast, Michelle. Thank you very much for having me, Jennifer. Well, I was really tickled to get your book from Quarto composting for a new generation. First of all, because I have not seen a comprehensive composting guide come out in the last couple of years. 
Yeah, it has it has been a while, probably a few decades. <laughs> Crazy. You are a big time composter. I know you talk composting a lot with your day job. Was this a difficult book for you to write? It was not. It it really all came together very easily. Um, there were a few parts of it that I had to do some research, especially the chapter on integrating composting into your garden, uh, because I have a pretty small urban backyard. So that took some research. But um, it, it actually, it's all in my head. So it was pretty easy to write. I love the part in your introduction where you say, I cannot imagine life without composting. <laughs> Some people might hear that and go, really? But then on the (laughs) other hand, once you start composting, it's really hard to imagine not doing it. I equate it to recyclers who got used to not throwing away pop cans. In the 70s, we were Mm -hmm. all picking up pop cans. (laughs) But if you're a composter, the same thing happens. You just wouldn't dream of throwing away those scraps. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I find that when I'm, um, you know, on vacation or I'm out and I have like a banana peel, I'll wrap it up and save it in my purse. I just, I cannot throw it away so hard. And tell me a little bit, because I know you've got small kids. How has this practice of composting impacted them? Like, what do you notice that they do that maybe some of their younger counterparts don't do? Well, they definitely know what goes into the compost pail in our kitchen. Even my four-year-old will walk through and if they have friends over, they'll correct them. You know, don't put that apple core in the garbage. Mom's going to yell at you. <laughs> um, but but they know. They know exactly. And my older son, he will go out and he can actually put the, the materials into the bin. So they're very aware of composting and it's just completely natural to them because they've been doing it their whole life. And when you think about getting people started composting, a lot of it has to do with helping them understand understand the benefits of composting. This Mm -hmm. is the first section of your book. I love the introduction that you wrote on page nine. You're simply answering the question, why compost? Could you read that for us? And then let's talk about just kind of anecdotally some of the benefits of composting. Sure. So imagine taking materials that many people view as garbage and transforming them into something useful. When you compost, you create something that will amend your soil and improve your garden. You create something that has the ability to bind heavy metals so your plants don't absorb them. You create something that reduces your need for fertilizers and pesticides. Best of all, creating this special something requires no electricity, and you can make all the tools you need yourself. Okay, sell us on it. Why should we (laughs) compost? I would say, especially for gardeners, Um, you're creating the best soil amendment you can for your backyard, and you're creating it out of something that most people view as garbage. Um, You know, it's something that we all have. You know, everybody eats fruits and vegetables, hopefully, and it's so easy to do. It really is not that complicated. You can create a basic bin with very minimal work, and then you're creating something of real value that, you know, you can go to a store and buy compost, but you can also make it in your own backyard and not have to pay the money or drive to the store. So it's such a wonderful amendment for your soil. And I think any really experienced gardener would say the same. Michelle, let's talk really quick. You know, when you were doing your introduction, I was thinking all of this, most people would be like, okay, that sounds great. And then you have this sentence in there where you say, you create something that has the ability to bind heavy metals. And I Mm -hmm. thought, 
if I'm a beginning gardener or someone who is not mm-hmm. composted, I'm going, whoa, 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 what did she just say? And I don't understand <laughs> that. Help us understand that part of it. Sure. So compost has a lot of superpowers and um, and a lot of people, they they don't really understand the science behind it. Compost, it, because of the chemical makeup of it, it can take polluted soil and bind that so that your plants aren't absorbing it. And they've actually, they use compost in cleanups to bioremediate soils, especially soils that have petroleum or um, uh PAHs, which are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, is a long way of saying it. But basically, they take polluted soil and the compost can bind those materials, including the heavy metals, in the soil and keep them from being brought up into the plants. So the compost microbes can actually degrade toxic organic compounds and make them into something less toxic. Pretty amazing stuff for your soil. So in the same way that plants are helping purify the air, compost Mm -hmm. is, in a sense, helping really purify that soil. It is, because there's so much life in there. It's not just dirt. There's actually living things in there that have a whole ecosystem, and they can do amazing things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you talk about is a zero-waste lifestyle. Is that Mm -hmm. what you're striving for personally, and is that something that you'd recommend others try to do? Do is attain that zero waste lifestyle. Absolutely. And when we talk about z- a zero waste lifestyle, zero waste is a future goal that we're striving for. Uh, very few people actually achieve creating no waste at all, but it's more of a vision. It's something to look forward to. And composting can be a part of that where you are not creating waste that's going to the landfill. You're actually using that as a beneficial use. But there's lots of other things that you can do to create a zero waste lifestyle. Certainly, I've not achieved it. I still put you know waste out to the curb just like everybody else. But it's really more of a thought process and a way of looking at everything that you do bit by bit and the garbage that you create and how could I reduce that. Section two talks a little bit about the science of composting. And here mm-hmm. you're trying to help people understand all of the different microorganisms and the process that's happening as right. things are getting broken down. Tell us, like, give us a primer, a one-on-one. What are some things we should be considering when we think about the science of composting? Well, the really great thing about considering composting is the secret of composting is that you're trying to keep the micro and macroorganisms in your pile alive. So everything you do for that pile is trying to keep them alive. So you want to keep air in the pile. You want to keep a certain level of water or moisture so that those little creatures can survive. You want to make sure that you're feeding them the right kinds of materials. Uh, So really understanding who's living in your backyard pile, even though you usually can't see them, can help you become a better composter. So that's why I included it in there. Certainly, you don't have to be a scientist to learn how to compost, but it is, I think, fascinating to read about how that whole world works. Well, I always chuckle when I think about composting. I remember one time 
Margaret Roach was interviewing a guest and they were talking about composting. And he's like, oh, I, I throw a pair of jeans in my compost pile. He's <laughs> like, everything will eventually break down. So yeah. I, he doesn't get too hung up on what goes into the compost pile. Do you mm-hmm. subscribe to that same thought process that just, hey, throw it in there, anything goes? Yeah, to some extent. So there's different types of composters. And if you're not concerned about how fast you're going to get your finished compost and you're okay with it taking five years for that pair of jeans to break down, then go for it. (laughs) But I do think there are a few things that I recommend people don't add to their bins, especially when they're starting out. And those are things like meat, dairy, those those things can create a garbagey smell and may turn people off from composting. So eventually, obviously, meat is going to break down. But in the meantime, it's going to attract all the critters from your neighborhood. It's going to smell gross and likely your neighbors are going to be unhappy. So for the most part, yeah, most things are going to break down. Yeah, stay away from those proteins. Mm-hmm. I I was listening right. to the Joe Gardner podcast. In any case, that's one of the things that they were talking about, which was the proteins in your compost bin are mm-hmm. exactly what are most attractive to rodents or raccoons mm-hmm. or other critters. They they love those proteins. So your meats and your dairies, things like that. And apparently that smell is probably helping to draw them as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, two colors come up every time you talk about composting or you're trying to introduce people to the concept. It's green and brown. So let's talk (laughs) about the greens and the browns and then the ratio that people should try to strive for when they're putting things in their compost bin. Right. So we we talk about brown materials and the most common brown material are the leaves that fall from our deciduous trees. Um, that's going to be the most common and it is really the basis of most compost piles. We love leaves, but also you can have straw or wood chips or pine needles or even paper. Um, usually shredded paper is better. So all those materials are brown and those are high in carbon. And then you have green materials or those materials that are higher in nitrogen than the brown materials. So those kinds of things would be fruit and vegetable scraps from your kitchens. Even though coffee grounds are, they look brown, they're considered a green material. And then any kind of manure would also be a a green material. And so one of the basics that make composting work better is if you have a three to one ratio. So three parts brown to one part green. And then once you get more advanced, you can move that up a little bit and have two parts brown to one part green. But when you're starting out, it's really safer to have three parts brown to one part green. That does not mean that you need to get out the scale or the measuring cups and make sure that everything is perfect. It's really more eyeballing it. But you want to make sure you have that good balance. And what that does is helps feed the the microorganisms exactly the balance of carbon and nitrogen that they need to build their cell walls and to do everything that they need to do to decompose that material. Um, It's also a perfect balance for making sure that everything's going to decompose quickly, but also without smelling. So although there's a science behind it, you don't have to be exact with it. Let's say you are talking to someone and they're telling you that their compost pile is really smelly 
is one of the quickest fixes to just simply add more brown material right away? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a couple reasons that you could get a smelly pile, but almost all of them can be solved with more brown material. If the pile is too wet, you can get anaerobic bacteria, um, the kind that you'd find like in swamps that would make it really stinky. You can get that thriving in your bin. You don't want that. So if you add some dry leaves and kind of fluff it up a little bit, that's good. A lot of times uh, beginners will not bury their food scraps, and that's an important step. So every time you add food scraps, you want to completely bury it in leaves. You don't want to be able to peek in your bin and see a banana peel. Everything should be covered with leaves. And then that way you don't get that garbagey smell. So yeah, leaves are the miracle workers of the compost bin. I think when a lot of people start composting and they're thinking about this ratio, they begin to quickly realize that accumulating more brown matter is the bigger challenge because our day-to-day with the food scraps and whatnot, it's so easy to have green material. It just seems like that's Mm -hmm. easier to come by. So do you recommend people actually go out and buy wood chips, that they go out and buy straw or somehow purchase more brown material because a lot of times, you know, they just simply don't have enough when they want to get started. Mm-hmm. And the, the more experience you get when you're composting, the better you get at stockpiling brown material <laughs> so that you have it all throughout the year. So yeah, certainly if you're starting, decide to start a compost pile in the summer and you need brown material. There's a few things that you can do. You can you can shred up some, especially newspaper or cardboard. Um, you can ask around. Sometimes neighbors will have leaves, but definitely saving your leaves from the fall. I know usually we have a big dump of leaves in the fall, sometimes a little bit in the spring, and then the rest of the year you're without leaves. So what I do is I have multiple wire bins that just hold leaves around my yard. And, you know, I'll use those for throughout the year, and they'll they'll decompose on their own too. A lot of times there are Facebook groups in the city that you live in that are leaf exchange groups. And so people will go to get on there and say, hey, I have four bags of leaves. We want some. And or, hey, I need some leaves. Does anybody have any? Those actually exist. So you can do that. Sometimes communities will have a community pile of leaves so that the public works department, you know, comes around and collects and then they have a compost pile. And a lot of times they're okay with residents coming and taking some leaves too. So you might want to call your community before you go and buy. And then, you know, after the Halloween or Thanksgiving season, a lot of times there are those straw bales that the grocery store or whatever store had as decoration. And they're usually thrilled to have you come and take them off their hands. So there's a lot of free options out there before you go and buy wood chips. Yeah, certainly brown materials can be a struggle sometimes of the year. I like when you start section three, which is all about the composting basics, you answer this simple question, which is, what can I compost? And you say, ask yourself this question, did it come from a plant? Because if the answer is yes, then most likely you can compost it in your backyard. Are there some things that just are favorites of yours to add to the compost bin? Yes, I love adding coffee grounds. Coffee grounds, a mixture of coffee grounds and leaves is magic. If those were the only two things that I had to compost for the rest of my life, those would be the two things that I do. (laughs) So coffee grounds are fantastic. And I may like them even more because I don't drink a lot of coffee. I'm a tea drinker. So I have to go to coffee shops and... (laughs) 
<laughs> and, you know, outsource it or bring it home from work or, you know, places that I can get used grounds. But every once in a while, I'll make a pot of coffee. But it's so high in nitrogen and it's already ground up into little pieces to where it almost looks like finished compost and it smells lovely. And for some reason, pests like rats or mice or things don't like the smell of coffee. And so if you sprinkle it on the top of your pile, it actually deters critters from getting into your pile. So definitely coffee is among my favorites, but then food scraps. So, you know, anything that you're not able to eat, like the banana peel or stems or, you know, rinds or whatever, all of those things are great to put in your compost. I know Mike McGrath from You Bet Your Garden says the same thing that you said, which is if he only had a handful of things that he could compost, he mostly goes for leaves and coffee grounds. Yeah, so. they're, they're fantastic. And it's a fantastic combination, too. It's a perfect balance of carbon and nitrogen. How about eggshells? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I compost my eggshells, um, and they do take a very long time to break down. So oftentimes you will see eggshells in your finished compost and it doesn't bother me. I don't mind the look of them. But if that bothers you, if you want that perfectly brown crumbly material without the little eggshells in it, then just don't compost eggshells. Um, there are some people that will powder them, you know, grind them in a blender till they're a powder and put it in there. And that's one solution. But most people aren't going to go to that much trouble. Hmm. How about, um, you mentioned the word trouble, people don't want to go to the trouble, but then there right. are some of these things that are actual trouble if you decide to compost them. And I loved your list on page 48, you call them untraditional compostables, <laughs> <laughs> which was a very nice way of putting it. But these are things that you're really not a huge <laughs> fan of. Well, so it's really a matter of personal preference. I'm not trying to steer anyone away from them. These things are <laughs> compostable. So if you wanted to add them to your bin, you can. Um, but some of them fall, you know, soundly in the gross category. <laughs> um, but that's okay. I mean, certainly all of these will decompose in your pile and they're fine. So one thing that a lot of people have are cotton swabs. And so they actually have to be the cardboard and cotton. So like Q-tips, those you can compost, those break down. Um, and most people aren't thinking about that when they're using them, but they no. can. Certainly eggshells, tissues kind of fall into the gross yeah. uh, category, but they are decomposable. I mean, they will break down in your pile. Um, and the same goes for paper towels. And you want to look at your paper towels. There are some really high-grade, fancy paper towels that have a little bit of plastic in them. Oh. So think about, so if you're using the cheap paper towels like I do, um, then <laughs> it's probably okay. Um, but if you're using really fancy paper towels, you might want to test one and, and make sure that they break down. Um, dryer lint, that's one thing I do add to my pile. That's a good carbon source. And, you know, it's not very plentiful. You don't get a whole lot of dryer lint out of it, but you'd be surprised how much that adds up. So, Michelle, you need to have two more kids and then you'll have enough dryer lint to really add some brown. I'm telling you, girl. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> Um, and certainly any kind of hair, so pet hair, you know, human hair, if you're cutting your hair, 
the hair takes a long time to decompose and so do nail clippings. It's all kind of made out of the same material, but it will decompose eventually. Most matches, of course, you, you know, that's just paper that will decompose. And then there's things that are meat alternatives that are not really meat uh, or milk. Things like soy and almond milk or tofu, those things are plant-based and they will decompose. Of course, it's better that you eat or drink those things rather than putting them in the compost. But sometimes things go bad and you don't get to them. Um, Nutshells will take a very long time to decompose, but they will. And oftentimes they're cracked, so they will do better if they're in smaller pieces. Um, one that I unfortunately sometimes have to do is old wine um, or beer. I've, I've tried a few beers where I was like, this is not worth the calories of me drinking this. <laughs> tastes so bad. So that sometimes ends up in the compost. Or if you start a bottle of wine and you don't finish it, you know, those are those are great sources of nitrogen for your pile. So those are great to add. Um, and then urine, which also falls in the gross category. But urine is very high in nitrogen. And, you know, depending on how you want to get it to your compost pile, mm-hmm. it, it is actually, it can be a, a really good thing to add, especially to leaf piles. Um, and then things like, you know, feathers, if you've got an old feather pillow or um, even from your the dust from your vacuum cleaner, if you have one of those that just pulls out and it's a little compartment, that can be composted. Um, and that goes also for things that you might sweep up off your floor. They're usually just dirt that you can add to it or old potting soil. The section that comes next is is maintaining your compost. And I mm-hmm. think for so many folks, they think, okay, I'm on board, I'm going to compost. And then they think, oh my gosh, now what? I've started it. How do I keep this thing going? How do I make sure that I'm doing it right? What advice right. do you have for folks with maintaining your compost? Mm-hmm. And what are some of the key things that, that folks need to keep in mind? The big thing to keep in mind is that if you are not concerned about how quickly you get finished compost, if it's okay with you, if it's not for a year or two years down the line, you can be lazy when you're composting. But if you want finished compost faster, the more attention you give your compost, the faster you're going to get finished compost. So the big things are aerating the pile. So making sure that there's enough air in the pile. And that really depends on what kind of bin you have. But there are some really nice aerating tools out there or just really poking around with a stick will get air down into the bottom of that pile. And what that does is allows the aerobic bacteria to get in there and really start breaking things down quickly. If you don't aerate the pile, then they're not going to get enough air to do their job. Of course, keeping a good carbon and nitrogen balance is important. And we talked about that. And then making sure that it is the right level of moisture. So you want it to be about as wet as a wrung out sponge. So if you pick up, if you have a gloved hand and you pick up a handful of your composting materials and you squeeze it and it wrings out, like there's just water coming out of it, it's way too wet. If you squeeze it and it's just crunchy and nothing's happening, then it's too dry. 
And if you squeeze it and it's just maybe one drop that comes out, then it's the perfect amount of moisture. So those are the big things with maintaining your bin that you want to keep an eye on. So the the squeeze test is really helpful and also keeping in mind the moisture content of some of the things that you're adding is probably helpful right. too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because if you're adding a lot of fruit and vegetable scraps, you probably don't need to add water to your bin because that adds a lot of water. And grass clippings are the same, but leaves tend, especially the dried brown leaves, tend to be really dry. So if you're not adding other things or if it's not rained in a while, then you may need to add some water to your bin. I love the little section that you included here that's called winter compost maintenance, which (laughs) for so many folks, that's just not even something that they consider. They kind of suspend composting here Mm -hmm. in Minnesota for sure, because it's been so, so, so cold, like negative 20, negative 30. But you have some tips here. In fact, you have one section called overachiever winter composting (laughs) tips. I'm like, holy cats, we're really climbing up the composting ladder here. (laughs) Yes. So I, I put in there you know, tips everyone should follow and then overachiever tips because I didn't want everyone to think you have to be an overachiever in the winter. You certainly can just let the pile be and not turn it and, you know, and then everything will be fine. And you can can keep adding even when it's frozen, you can add to it. Um, just know it's not going to really be doing much. It's everything's kind of hibernating and taking a break over the winter in most areas of the country. But the overachiever composting, there are people that do this and I certainly won't fall into this category, but you can um, insulate the sides of your bin. I've seen videos where people have bales of straw that they line up around the outside of their bin and really it keeps, the compost keeps a high temperature over the winter and you can put a thermometer in there and so it's, it's still active. But the biggest thing for the winter is you don't need to turn your bin. You don't need to aerate it in the winter. It's not really doing anything, but you can keep adding. And you just want to make sure when you add food scraps over the winter that you're continuing to also add the leaves and layers, you know, still burying the material. In the spring, when it does heat up, you're ready to go and you don't get a super soppy, wet pile that's all of these food scraps you've added over the winter that fall out and are all of a sudden, it's way too wet. Question for you on composting styles. You give so many wonderful, uh, what you call in-vessel composting techniques. So many different ideas here. What is the one or two that you would suggest for a beginner? Really, the easiest ones are the ones that are on the ground. So they have direct contact with the soil. That allows the soil organisms to come up into the pile. It allows water to go back down into the soil underneath. So anything that is those typical black plastic bins that you buy at the store, those are pretty easy to do. Um, Or even a wire bin for leaves. If you just want to do leaves and coffee grounds and start there, those are really easy bins to maintain. The black plastic bins are nice because they hold in moisture. They help heat up the compost and they contain everything in a nice neat package so that your neighbors don't complain or maybe your spouse doesn't complain that you've got food scraps, you know, strewn across the yard. And they also keep out rodents and other things that you wouldn't want to attract to your yard. 
You know, there is a bin idea that you share that was featured in Mother Earth News back in 1976. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this was my personal favorite that I saw in your book. I thought, oh, I like this idea. But it's the, uh, you call it the converted trash can composter. Tell us about doing this one, how to do it, because you give DIY steps in your book, lots of pictures. It's really, really helpful. But then also the advantages of this, because part of this trash can project means that part of this bin is subterranean. It's buried underground. Right. This is a great bin for people that do have a lot of pests in their area and they're really trying to keep those kind of creatures out of their bin. And it's also a a fun bin because you can reuse an old trash can. So it doesn't have to be metal. It can be plastic. Oftentimes, communities are, are moving over to these big trash carts and people are left with these old trash bins. So it's a nice way to reuse that. We used a metal bin in the book and, you know, we wanted a pretty nice and shiny one, but you can certainly use whatever you have. And the idea is you drill holes in the bottom of the the can and along the sides to allow for the water to come out. And you have the secure lid to keep animals out. And then you dig a foot or two down, usually about 15 inches down into the soil so that you have a hole that it goes down into. And you don't have to keep that same hole. You know, you can every year move it around wherever you'd like. The idea is that it is keeping things out of your bin. And it's it's very hard for something to get in there, to knock it over, to mess it up. It's a really easy way to compost. How about in section six of your book? These are things that you call thinking outside the bin. The first one you talk about is trench composting. What are your thoughts on trench composting? I love trench composting and I've tried it a little bit, even though I have a a pretty small garden. It is a really nice way for people to compost, especially if you're in a homeowner's association that doesn't allow you to compost, (laughs) uh, which exists. Um, You can kind of compost on the down low and, uh, you know, so nobody even knows that you're composting. And it's a nice way to amend your soil, too. You just have to be patient enough to allow the material to decompose and not try to plant things on it immediately. I do list some ideas for plants that are okay to plant on it, but a lot of plants don't want to be planted right on top of food scraps that are still decomposing. I list a few different methods. You can just do a really simple garden row trench where, you know, you have one of your your rows in between your your actual plants that you dig up and you put in uh, your food scraps. And then, you know, there's, of course, the English method, which is much more complicated, where you have three rows. One is a walking space, one are plants, one is a compost trench, and you kind of alternate those throughout three years, and it helps build up your soil. But it's a really nice way to build soil if you do have poor soils that you're working with and you want to try to build those up in a methodical way. Trench composting lets you do that. And this is also where with trench composting, you probably have to pay extra attention to the kinds of food scraps that you're putting out there because since it's easily accessible by animals, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to add things like protein in this instance, especially probably. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see that I recommend that you bury the food scraps. So, you know, you're putting it in the trench, but then you're covering it with five inches of soil over top of that. 
and that helps prevent at least the you know animals that would be up on the surface to come and get it. Now you may get a mole or you know something trying to to dig down underneath, but oftentimes that five inches of soil will will make it so there's no noticeable odor that would attract any animals. You know, section seven of your book is about vermicomposting. And I smiled so much as I was going through this, primarily because your kids factored into this. Vermicomposting (laughs) is a great thing to do with kids. Why don't you introduce us to it, assuming that nobody even knows what vermicomposting is, and then this great project you have for creating your own vermicomposting system. I thought it was a great idea. Yes. Vermicomposting is a fantastic project to do with kids. My daughter, who's four years old, she loves worms. And so she was just thrilled with this project. So, and I I step you through how to build the verma bin. It doesn't take that much, but the most important thing when you're composting with worms, and this is an indoor type of composting, um, is that you use a special kind of worm called a red wiggler. You cannot just go in your backyard and pick any kind of worm. It has to be the special kind of worm. They like to live in the bin, so they don't like to dig really deep. They're naturally worms that stay in the leaf litter on the top of the soil, so they're not ones that go down underneath really deep. So if you know if you were to get just a traditional earthworm and throw it in there, it would not be a happy worm because it can't dig down into the soil like it wants to. So you would keep them, and these red wigglers are major eaters. They can eat up to half their body weight in a day. So if you put a pound of red wigglers into one of these bins, you can put a half a pound of food scraps in for them to eat every day. Um, So they're, they're very impressive eaters. It's so easy to do. The only thing that you really have to get over is the ick factor of growing your own worms. Most gardeners have gotten over worm ick factor, but there are some people that think, you know, the worms are are really gross, but they're actually really fascinating little creatures. And a lot of classroom teachers will keep a vermicomposting bin in order to teach the kids about ecosystems, about worm biology, and just explaining how worms live. It's, It's really a fascinating project. So you get one of these Tupperware kind of containers and I I show a picture of my book and you really, it's, it's so simple. You just drill some holes near the bottom and around the side so that they can get air. And then you want to fill it with shredded newspaper with some leaves and you have to have the right kind of moisture level in there because the worms basically breathe through their skin. So they need to have that moisture or they'll die. And then you add your food scraps. And just like with a backyard bin, you want to bury those food scraps in there just so that you don't really attract flies or the big things with the vermicompost bins. But they're really very easy to maintain. And it is a fascinating project for kids. I love that schools are doing more of that as well, which is definitely the case. Every time I go into a school now, the kids are showing me their little bins and they have no inhibitions about dealing with worms either, by the way. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Question about, you have a little cutout in your book and it's on page 148 and you simply call it sprouting avocado pits. I thought this was (laughs) adorable. Tell us about this. So the really cool thing about the vermicompost is that for some reason there is a chemical in there that actually encourages 
avocado pits or any kind of seed to sprout. And I know I have tried to grow avocado plants from an avocado pit and not been successful. But it, but in the mm-hmm. worm bin, it just happens. You just put the, the pit in there and then check on it in a few weeks and it's sprouted. So it's really, it's very simple. You just put it in there basically um, and then you pull it out and then you can plant it, you know, in a pot of sandy soil and you've got yourself a little avocado plant. You know, you have this other little section here that I think most people would not be familiar with and that is black soldier fly larva composting. (laughs) You've got to walk us through this. I know for many people, this will be a first. Yes, this is one of those really very new types of composting. And even uh, cultivating black soldier flies is, is something that's fairly new to the general public. But you can buy black soldier fly larvae. And actually, black soldier flies in many parts of the country will come to your compost naturally. But this is really trying to cultivate that. And almost like you would the worms, you are you know encouraging that larva. They are really heavy eaters. Um, the nice thing about black soldier flies, the actual adult of the, the insect, is that they don't bug you like a normal fly would. So, you know, if you're out having a picnic, the black soldier flies aren't going to come around and buzz around your head like you might imagine a fly would. They really avoid you. And the reason is the black soldier flies as an adult, they don't even eat. They just basically mate and then lay their eggs and then they're done. So um, it's a little bit different, but they are the larva. They're maggots. It it would be something that you'd have to get over that ick factor, but they are amazing eaters of food scraps and they can really turn around that material quickly. There are some niche groups that are cultivating them for fishing bait or or just to deal with composting, even on a larger scale, a larger commercial scale, black fly larva composting operations are happening. So they're pretty fascinating. And it's something that if you are really interested in, you can definitely look up online and find a whole world that you never knew existed. For sure. Now, would the bins for the black soldier fly larva, would that be very similar to what you're doing for the red wigglers? Not really, um, because you need to have, for the black soldier flies, because they are, the larva stage is just the baby stage, right? And it's going to turn into an adult. You have to have escape routes in the the container for the adults to get out. And so you have to incorporate that into the container. And it's a little bit more complicated container. You have to have an area basically for the females to lay their eggs so that you're still adding new larvae that are, you know, while your old ones are turning into adults. You also have to really watch the leachate in the black soldier fly and make sure that the liquid that's coming off is being taken care of. Um, and that's not quite as big a deal with vermicomposting, although it's certainly something I address in the book. But with black soldier fly larvae, the bin itself, and it's not even necessarily a bin, is something that it takes a little bit more work. All right. Section 8 is called Harvesting and Using Your Finished Compost. And you basically start out by saying, hey, all good things come to those who wait. So after you've done <laughs> all your work, you, your compost is ready to use. How do you know when it's all done? Well, certainly you want to look at it. You want to smell it. It should smell, have a really good earth 
smell. Um, it shouldn't smell rotting or strange. Um, it should be crumbly. There should not be any major noticeable food scraps in there like banana peels. If it looks like a banana peel, it's not done composting yet. And there certainly when you're harvesting your compost, there's going to be some things that you throw back into the pile. Uh, maybe a stick that got in there that's not finished. You can throw that back in or um, you know, something like a, a mango seed that takes a long time to decompose, you might find that. But as long as there's enough good crumbly brown stuff that smells good, then you can you can sort that kind of thing out. One of the things that you point out in your book that I thought was really interesting is you say strawberries thrive in compost socks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's actually something that I learned while I was researching this book. I had no idea. They actually recommend that when you have one of those sock kind of planting installations that have the holes in them periodically where you can put in the, the strawberry plant, that compost is a great material to put in there for your strawberry plants. Yeah. They really, really respond to it. it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, one of the things that you also mention right at the back of your book is you have a great DIY compost tea recipe. Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. So a lot of times people will have just a small amount of compost that they want to get the benefit of that compost over a large part of their garden. And so DIY compost tea is really using that little bit of compost, that soil amendment, to make what is essentially a fertilizer. A lot of times this is good for grassy areas or if you really just want to spread that benefit out. And so you can make compost tea a bunch of different ways. I have suggested one way to do that. Really, I think the best way to do it is to take an old pantyhose sock and you put your compost in it and you use that almost like your tea bag, right? And so you put it down into a five-gallon bucket full of water. You want to make sure that water has had a, enough time for the chlorine to evaporate off so you're not killing all of the beneficial bacteria that you're trying to cultivate. Some people will even go as far as putting an aquarium pump in there. And aquarium pumps are actually pretty cheap. It's a good way to really get the microorganisms in that tea moving. If, if you don't want to go out and buy an aquarium pump for this, you can also stir it every so often just to get the water moving in there. And then you put a couple tablespoons of sulfur-free molasses in there. And basically, you just give it about 24 hours to brew you're basically growing all of the beneficial microorganisms that are in the compost into that that water and helping to make that really strong fertilizer. And you can dilute it. Sometimes it's a little bit too strong for some plants, but it is a great way to kind of spread the benefit of your compost out throughout your yard. So you got that compost in the pantyhose, and then you've got the molasses, so you're adding that sugar to Mm -hmm. feed those organisms. And then I love the idea of that aquarium pump because then you're aerating down in there too, so you're giving it everything it needs to brew the successful compost tea. I love that idea. And you did it all in, what, a five-gallon bucket? five-gallon bucket, yeah. Super easy, super easy. One of the nice features of your book for people who are really interested in in beginning to compost this year in their 2018 gardens, or even if they've 
started composting and they're looking for more ideas. You've got so many different projects and alternatives that are featured in your book. But one of the things that I really liked about your book was what you share in the very back, which is all of these wonderful compost recipes. (laughs) And it would be so great if you could share some of these with us, maybe highlight a few of your favorites. And then let's talk about where people can find you. Oh, absolutely. So the recipes are specific to what kind of composting you want to do and what kind of bin you have. And they're really helpful for people, especially that are just starting out composting, because they tell you specifically, this is how much you need to kind of get started. And I look at composting as a lot like cooking. So, you know, when you're first starting out cooking, you want to follow the recipe to a tea, and then you start experimenting more. And and so that's what these are for. My favorite one, which I would suggest if you're going to start into hot composting, is that you really do follow a recipe. And then that is actually the first one there. But with hot composting, you really want to make sure that, ev- that the carbon and nitrogen balance is really perfect. I do it by parts. So you have six parts shredded leaves and then, you know, one part manure or coffee grounds. So you're you're getting the really high nitrogen materials in there as well. And then, you know, there's the simple leaf then composting where you just have 10 parts shredded leaves and one part coffee grounds. That's your basic recipe and it's very easy to follow. You have a suggested recipe for the tumblers, and a lot of people mm-hmm. have those. Those are the bins that they get at Christmas or they get for Mother's Day because the kids think, hey, we'll have mom start composting, and then she's got this tumbler and she has no idea what to do with it. So <laughs> <laughs> let's walk through that recipe. Yes, and tumblers are fantastic because they will create finished compost faster, but they're a little bit more high maintenance. So when you have a tumbler, you have to watch it and make sure that you're not putting in too much much wet material like food scraps that is making the compost in there too heavy and wet. So you want to keep adding shredded newspaper, shredded leaves into there. But then you also need to add a good shovel of garden soil, or you can purchase beneficial microorganisms to to get in there because it is up off the ground. So you're not getting that migration of the beneficial microorganisms from your soil up into the bin. So adding that shovel full of good soil, and I'm not talking about like the bag potting soil that's sterile, but really good garden soil will help kickstart that and and make it finish composting faster. That is a great point. Well, let's wrap up by having you tell us about where people can find you online. Your day job, you this is what you do. You talk to people about composting mm-hmm. all day long. And you write a blog called Confessions of a Composter which is very helpful. Yeah, the Confessions of a Composter is is part of my day job. And um, we try to keep a really uh, lighthearted and fun short post about composting and and have reminders about, you know, what you should be doing this time of year or, you know, can you compost bread? Or here's a good suggestion on reducing uh, fruit flies in your compost. So we try to keep it pretty lighthearted and easy to read um, for Confessions of a Composter. Um, But then certainly the book, Composting for a New Generation, is available pretty much wherever books are sold. So um, you can find it on Amazon or any of the the large online retailers. It's also, I found out yesterday, at 57 libraries across the country. Well, that's fantastic. I just have to ask out of curiosity before we wrap things up here, I'm sure 
sure you run into some pretty crazy composting scenarios that people (laughs) are presenting you with. Do you have kind of a just a funny story that stands out in your mind, something that people would get a chuckle out of? (laughs) Yes, I I have a couple of them, but one, um, one does come to mind. So um, our local Soil and Water Conservation District did an interesting study where they took five different, I think it was five or seven different backyard composters and took their finished compost and analyzed it for phosphorus content, nitrogen content, and, and basically what does this material have. And it was really across the board that, of the results that they had, which was really interesting but they had one finished compost that was super high in nitrogen, available nitrogen. And um, they, that really brought their attention because that's something that gardeners really want is this available nitrogen in the finished compost. And it had this perfect balance in it. And so they asked the homeowner, like, what are you adding to your compost that is making this finished compost so fantastic? And he just kind of grinned and blushed and sheepishly admitted that he was peeing in his compost bin and (laughs) and that was what was making all that available nitrogen so who knew I mean he must have a really uh secluded backyard (laughs) um that I think is the is the best one um um, (laughs) I love that well talk about confessions of a composter huh yes absolutely and that is that is a true confession right there (laughs) it's a true confession no doubt about it well Michelle composting for a new generation. It's the latest techniques for the bin and beyond. Thank you so much for being with us today and talking to us about composting. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for our show today on composting solutions, cleaner, faster methods to redefine rotten with Michelle Boltz. I hope today's show gave you an extra nudge to begin composting, whether you start with small steps like I did, recycling coffee grounds, newspaper, and eggshells, or by setting aside a small area in your 2018 garden and going for it. And don't forget, you can find Michelle's book on Amazon, Composting for a New Generation, Latest Techniques for the Bin and Beyond. And you can prime it for $18.38 and support the show. It's worth every penny. Just a reminder that the show notes for this episode will be under the Still Growing Podcast page over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And don't forget, there's a standing invitation for you to join the Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast group, the listener community for the show over at Facebook. I'm so thankful to my team over at Podfly Productions, Eric Begay, my editor and project manager, and my copywriter, Ein Kadena. I'd also like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm, and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. 
Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was also featured in episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your landscape. For my sign-off today, I leave you with this thought to help you grow. There is a science to composting, but it's not rocket science. Anyone can do it. So jump the biggest hurdle to composting and just get started. Relish having control. You get to choose what goes into your compost. No more mystery ingredients, and you get to reap the rewards. Quality, homegrown compost. There's no better investment for your garden. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Well, that's not working out. It doesn't help when you forget to hit play. Michelle Boltz is on the show today, and she is the author of Composting for a New Generation, Latest Techniques for the Bin and Beyond. A longtime backyard composter. Is there no the in there? Is it just latest? Yeah, I guess it is. Okay, sorry. I thought there it was supposed to say the latest techniques, and it's, it's just latest techniques. So we're going to do that again. Hi there, everyone. And... Why is it not recording? That rich, dark, earthy, crumbly substance worth... Okay, I... Stro- I <laughs> Composting makes great soil to cultivate healthy plants because it stimulates the creation of soil... Pro- <laughs> And compost makes great soil to cultivate healthy plants because it stimulates the creation of soil particle clusters, and that creates better soil structure with healthy air pot. And I'm so honored that you're spending some of your podcast time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. Why is my voice cracking? Also in the guest update segment, Marta McDowell shared an image on Twitter. Twitter? What is that? Also in the guest update segment, I caught a post from Marta McDowell showing pictures of her forcing branches this spring. Such a fun activity. She was forching. Forching. She was forching. Marta is forching. Sorry, Marta. In the plant. In inspiration this week, the Smithsonian Gardens shared a beautiful image of a magnolia bud, and they wrote this. They said, we are officially on magnolia bud watch in the Enid Haupt Garden. Our horticulturist predicts the garden will look very pink by next weekend in D.C. There's that alarm. That's not helping me. So there was not a single blooper from the recording of Froggy Love. Can you believe that? So I'm going to tell you a frog joke since you've stuck around to the very end. 
What do you call a woman with a frog on her head? Lily. <laughs> <laughs>